let me sort of set up where we're going to go. And uh, what I kind of, I have a concept, I have an idea, I have a set of themes and thoughts that I want to work out. It doesn't break cleanly into talk one, talk two, and talk three. Rather, it's just sort of like, hey, we're going to spend our time today um, thinking about this theme and concept together. And uh, I hope that, I think that by the end of the day, you're going to walk out of here uh, better equipped to be a faithful gospel missionary in the modern world. Um, And also, I hope, uh, provoked to think a little more deeply about some of the things that are shaping us. So um, let me set it up this way. The late American writer David Foster Wallace, uh, one of my favorite writers, once told the following parable. Two young fish are swimming along. And they happen to meet an older fish swimming the other way. The older fish nods at them and says, Morning, boys, how's the water? The two young fish swim on for a bit. And then eventually one of them looks over at the other and says, What the hell is water? The point of that parable is obvious. Uh, All of us, to some extent, are unaware of the context that surrounds us. We're so immersed in our culture that it doesn't register as an object for analysis, like a fish in water. We just don't pay attention to the things that surround us. What I want to do today is to help us become aware of the water, all right? So that's the goal and the aim of our time together today. Uh, To switch metaphors for a minute, if I can, let's say that I gave you or that I put up in front of us this morning, a map of the Quad Cities from 1970, all right? A 50-year-old map of the Quad Cities. I need you guys to tell me, because I'm not from here, so I don't know the answer to this question, but I want you to engage with this and, and yell out some thoughts. What would that map include that's still relevant today? What would be there that we would still recognize? Airport. Airport. River. Hopefully the river would still be there 50 years ago. What else? John Deere? Clock Tower? Rock Island Arsenal? That's all. Just those five things. Okay, all the downtowns. Yeah, like the, there's probably a lot of things that are still the same and that a map of the Quad Cities from 1970 would still help you navigate today, Right? Okay, what things would be missing from that map that you might care about? Bendorf, okay. That's all? Just that? That's the only thing? Target? Okay, so there's probably some new areas and developments. What else? Sacred City. Okay, good. That would not be on the map. You guys should care about that. What else? Chipotle. Um, what else? All right, you could, maybe you've mentioned as many things. Um, th- the point is pretty obvious, right? There's ways in which a map of the Quad Cities from 1970 would still be an accurate map. And there are ways that it wouldn't be. Um, the only way that it wouldn't be is it wouldn't reflect some of the new development uh, and technological advances, new roadways, new neighborhoods, new retail spaces, uh, new churches, right? Things that have been added to the city since 19. 19- 50. So likewise, as we think about what it means for us to be Christian missionaries in a, a post-Christian society, some of the map is still the same. As we think about what does it mean for us to make disciples in 2020 or 2021, um, in some ways that's going to look very similar to making disciples in 1521, 
Right? There are aspects of the faith once for all handed down to the saints that have not changed, that do not change, and that Christian discipleship is going to be the same now as it was 500 years ago or 1,000 years ago or 3,000 years ago. But on the other hand, there are things that would be different or that will be different, right? There are new neighborhoods that have been added to the map, so to speak, or maybe more accurately, old neighborhoods that have been torn down. Uh, That's the work that we're called to do as missionary theologians. We're we're called to uh, update the map of Christian discipleship to accurately reflect the context in which we're making disciples. Um, If you want to use a different analogy, again, the idols people chase after, the false gods we serve, uh, are always similar, but they take different shape from generation to generation and from culture to culture, right? What it looks like for an American to pursue the idol of comfort or affluence or pleasure might look quite different from what a uh, 16th century European would have experienced in chasing those false gods, all right? So what I want us to do today is some of the work of thinking about the context of our mission. Where are we trying to make disciples? In what cultural moment are we trying to make disciples? And what does that mean for us as thoughtful Christians? What will it take for us to engage that work and do it faithfully and do it well and do it accurately in ways that actually speak the gospel to the real things that lie at the heart of people in our world? Uh, Last year, at the end of last year, um, Tim Keller put this on Twitter. In 2,000 years, we've never learned how to do mission in a place that was post-Christian rather than pre-Christian. If you're in ministry, it's going to take all your life to help the church figure out how to do this. Let me read that again. In 2,000 years, we've never learned how to do mission in a place that was post-Christian rather than pre-Christian. If you're in ministry, it's going to take all your life to help the church figure out how to do this. That's a really insightful observation. If you read uh, a lot of sort of cultural critics or church theologians and historians, what they'll say is, hey, the modern world is kind of a lot more like uh, the Roman era, the early church. It's more like that than the medieval era. And so we need to go back and learn from the early church. And there's ways in which that's true. However, Keller is saying, actually, we're doing mission in a context that has never before existed. The world has never been post-Christian. It's only been pre-Christian or Christianized. And so there is a unique calling upon us to figure out, what does it mean to do Christian mission in a post-Christian world? And that quote has haunted me for the last year because I think that's my calling as a pastor and leader. I think it's your calling, I think it's our calling as Christians in the modern world, and that's what I want to help give us some traction on in this set of lectures. What does it mean to do mission in a post-Christian world, and what new things do we need to think about? Uh, What old things do we need to rethink in order to do that well? All right, so here's what I want to ask you to turn to some people around you, so I'm going to give you three minutes, all right? Three minutes to have a a, a really quick and simple conversation with either your cohort or some people from your church, whoever you're just sort of near enough to that you can turn around and, and speak.
So here's the three-minute conversation I want you to have, and then I'm going to ask you to sort of uh, say out loud some of the things that you thought about together. Uh, What are some of the realities of a post-Christian world that work against Christian discipleship? So if you just take that Tim Keller tweet and say, okay, what are some of the realities of life in a post-Christian world that work against Christian discipleship? Or what are some of the aspects of living in a post-Christian society that make Christianity seem distant or inaccessible or implausible or illegitimate or unwelcome? What, are, what, what do you identify intuitively as some of those things? What are some of the realities of post-Christian world that work against Christian discipleship? So have that conversation with each other right now, and then I'm going to ask you to yell out some answers here in about three minutes. Someone from each group, just yell out some of the things that your group talked about. What are some of the realities of post-Christian uh, society that, may, that work against Christian discipleship? Okay, good. Truth being subjective. What else? Okay, what do you mean exactly by that? Science and technology. Okay, good. Good, other thoughts? Okay, what do you mean? How is cynicism a mark of post-Christian society? Okay, good. Good, so there's sort of an underlying current of cynicism toward religion and Christianity. Good, what else? Okay, good. Say that again. Sorry, what did you say after? Okay, good, yeah. Rejection of religion and sort of like that's acceptable and good and no one is going to ever question that. What else? Okay, how is that? Why do you think that's particular in our day and age? Okay, good. So there's this high value on human potential and like we've, we've kind of accomplished everything we've ever done. So there's a high degree of self-reliance. Good. By the way, if there's anything from the live stream, you guys in the back, just feel free to yell it out and I'll add it up here. All right, what else? A loss of empathy and a loss of critical thinking, both. Okay. Interesting. Talk more about that loss of empathy. What do you see there? Um, I think a lot of it has to do with the acceptance of the science and technology now is that we just interpret it and we just see it right away and gloss over everything and just say, oh, okay, we just deal with it now. Okay. Good. Okay, interesting. Degradation of language. What else? 
Feminism? Okay. Very good. What else? <laughs> Newer is better. Chronological snobbery. All right. Any others that you're dying to add to the list? I know this isn't an exhaustive list, so we're not aiming to list everything. But this is a good, a good list. So, so what you're telling me is these 10 or 11 things are some of the features of, some of the intuitive things you guys can identify as ways that a post-Christian world works against Christian discipleship. Okay, So I think this is a really good starting point, a really good beginning list. Uh, and this is kind of the work that I want us to do. So I want to introduce you to two concepts that basically say, okay, what are we talking about when we talk about all of these things? And, and why these things would be a hindrance or a challenge to Christian discipleship in the 21st century. Uh, these concepts may not be new to you. Uh, maybe they will be. Uh, the, the first concept is the idea of a plausibility structure. Uh, this is from Leslie Newbigin. Um, plausibility structure just relates to what people in any society or any culture see as plausible. So one of Les Anubijan's big insights is, hey, in a, in a more Christianized world, if you dial the clock back 70 or 80 or 100 years, Christian faith seemed a lot more plausible. Why? Because we were living in a world that was highly influenced by Christian ideas. There was a high degree of biblical literacy in the culture. You hadn't yet had the sexual revolution and third wave feminism. And so in certain ways, Christianity probably seemed more plausible to our grandparents and our great-grandparents. But now we live in a day and age where the plausibility structure is different. The, the things people conceive of as plausible have changed. So if you say, hey, we believe that um, Jesus was born of a virgin miraculously by the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary, people say, that just doesn't seem plausible. Man, we live in a world of science, and I, I, also I know about sex, and that doesn't seem like that works, Right? Uh, if you talk about miracles, you talk about the second coming, if you just work through the Apostles' Creed and think about the way these things resonate in the modern world, the plausibility, has the plausibility structure has changed such that people do not see these things or sense these things as having plausibility. All right? There's sort of a, a more incredulousness with which people treat the basic tenets of the Christian religion. So plausibility structure is given to us by Leslie Newbegin, and I think it's a very helpful um, idea. The other idea that I want to introduce you to uh, is the idea of a social imaginary. Uh, this is from Charles Taylor. Um, and he wants us to think about social imaginary. Here's why. Because he says um, Christians for, for decades now have done a good job thinking about worldview. And if you've been around the Christian world or read some apologetics, you've probably gotten some training in like why it's important to have a Christian worldview or, or what a Christian worldview looks like, right? The way we see the world. But Charles Taylor says, hey, the problem with the idea of worldview is that it's primarily a cognitive concept. It implies that you've thought about the world and you've developed a view of the world. What we're actually living in, a more realistic way to talk about how people come to embrace a certain plausibility structure is that it's embedded in what he calls the social imaginary. 
Um, think about this more like David Foster Wallace's idea of the water we swim in. Um, it's not that people are feeding you concepts and saying, hey, here's why the Christian faith doesn't seem to make sense to me. Here's the list of five to ten objections that I have to your doctrine. Um, what's, what's felt more is, yeah, that just doesn't seem cool. That doesn't seem interesting. That's not what seems to be the things people around me are giving their lives to. The way I imagine the world to be based on the music that I listen to and the Netflix shows that I watch and the conversations I have with my friends and the network of people that I run in, these things are all shaping a certain view of the world that's not cognitive, it's precognitive. It relates to the social matrix that we live in. So if you think about, if you take Taylor's idea of a social imaginary, which he built out in the 1980s and 90s, and then lay social media over the top of that, right? And ask, how has social media deepened the sense of our social imaginary, the things that seem common sense and intuitive and meaningful to the world that we live in? You can see how we're embedded in a social imaginary that, that is deep in all of these areas, but without people having thought about it. So let's take a couple examples. I know few people in my church who have actually read Shulamith Firestone or Simone de Beauvoir or any of the key feminist thinkers, but there's just a general sense that feminism makes a ton of sense and the patriarchy is bad and men are probably evil, right? Now, no one I think would say that, and actually no one would say all the men that I know are evil, but there's a general sort of skepticism about traditional gender roles or about masculinity or, gen or a set of assumptions about what it means to be a woman that are just embedded in the social imaginary. You don't have to read about them. They're present in the movies that you watch and the people you follow on social media. They're, they're just out there, right? Um, think about the idea of self-reliance, right? No one has to sort of philosophize for you on the virtue of self-reliance or why autonomous human uh, experience matters. This is just sort of the water that we swim in, right? Cynicism. Um, this is actually a really fascinating one because think about how much of our music and art deals in cynicism. Think about humor. Think about, have you ever watched a Bill Cosby stand-up routine and thought about how, I mean, even though Bill Cosby's like, canceled now. But like if you, if you thought about like Bill Cosby in his prime, people don't find that stuff that funny anymore. You know why? Because there's not a whole lot of cynicism in it. Why do we like the comedians we like? Well, because they basically unmask everything and tell us and sort of like mock it all. And that's what we find funny now, right? Um, think about comedy movies in the 1980s. They were just very different. There wasn't the same undercurrent of cynicism. But again, this is baked into our social imaginary now. So plausibility structure and social imaginary give us two helpful categories for thinking about what we're up against. There's a certain social imaginary, an embedded and intuitive way of thinking and feeling that makes Christian faith seem implausible. Uh, here's how Charles Taylor says it that's helpful. The difference between our age and ages past is not the catalog of available beliefs but the default assumptions about what is believable. Let me read that again. The difference between our age and past ages is not the catalog of available beliefs, but the default assumptions about what is believable. 
What he's saying is people have the same options they always have. You can be an atheist, you can be a Buddhist, you can be a Hindu, you can be irreligious, you can be a Christian, you can be different types of Christian, you can be an Anglican or an Evangelical or a Catholic. What's different is not the catalog of beliefs. What's different is what people seem to find believable. That's the key difference. And that makes all the difference for how we think about our task as Christian missionaries. So you might think about this. What are some of the key places where Christianity seems implausible to your peers, to the people you know? What are the defeaters? What are the places where the Christian faith just seems implausible? It's not that they have thought about and rejected Christianity. It's just that, man, it doesn't seem plausible. It doesn't seem like it fits. Increasingly, those have to do with things other than core doctrinal issues, right? It's not even miracles and the incarnation and the virgin birth that makes Christianity seem implausible. Nowadays, it's more things like gender and the Christian sexual ethic and the idea of belonging to something that has meaningful requirements of accountability. Those are the things that increasingly seem implausible to people. So... um, let me, let me just tell you a little story about a conversation I had this week. So this past week, I got together with some pastor friends of mine. All of us planted churches in the mid-2000s, and so we've been leading for 15 years or so in the church. And we were having this conversation about places where we are dissatisfied with the way discipleship is working in our churches. If we just said, hey, are we making the kind of disciples we want to make? Are people following Jesus in the ways we've hoped and prayed for? We had to acknowledge, ah, I'm not satisfied with how that looks in my church. And we started asking, why is that? Where are we missing? Um, and what we began to do is we, we began to list, hey, what are the key deformative influences that are at work in people in our churches? Where are the places where they've been shaped in certain ways that we feel like our Christian discipleship, the ways we're doing it, just isn't hitting those areas. Um, and, and so we listed this set of deformative influences, and what we, what we realized as we did that is, it's not that people aren't convinced of the truth of the gospel. It's not that people don't want to follow Jesus. It's not that people aren't committed to the scriptures. What's happening, what's causing less than ideal discipleship in my church and in the churches of my friends is that discipleship is getting undermined by the existing plausibility structure. There are ways that uh, our society and people's families of origin have baked into us certain assumptions about reality that sometimes Christian discipleship just has a hard time deconstructing those areas and then building a biblical way of thinking in those areas. And I could talk all day about various aspects of that, but I want to be most helpful to us today. And so I want to simplify it down to one simple category that we're going to spend the rest of the day talking about. If we take one category and say, okay, how can we take a bunch of these things that you guys listed and capture one category that I think gives us a way of getting at many of these? It probably won't get at all of them, but I think it can get us to many of them. And here's what it is. It's the modern concept of the self. Okay, So what I want us to think about today is 
the modern self. If you want sort of a title for this set of teachings, you might think of it as the mission of God and the modern self. This is what I want us to think about. What is the modern view of the self and how does understanding it give us some insight into how the map has changed? Going back to our map analogy, I want to suggest to you that the way we think about the self in 2020 is vastly different from how people thought about the self in 1970 or 1930 or 1520. And that has key implications for how we do the work of making disciples. Here's why I think this is a fascinating category for us to think about. Because it affects both your own discipleship and your discipleship of others. So this is something that has connection to your personal relationship with God and to your work as a leader in the church. You have learned how to be a self. You have a self-concept. You have a sense of who you are and who you're not. You have some idea of what it means to be a person in distinction from other selves. And so in order to be a disciple of Jesus, you have to allow the Scriptures to reshape your own sense of yourself. So what we're going to talk about today has first and foremost application for each of us as we individually follow Christ. But also, I think this is what underlies many of your challenges in the church when it comes to evangelism and discipleship and apologetics and many of the things Porterbrook is helping you work out. What does it mean for you to be a disciple? What does it mean for you to lead and serve the church? What does it mean for you to engage in the mission of God and make disciples in the world? Most people around you aren't reading books about the philosophies that drive our culture. Here's what they're doing. They're trying to navigate the world as a self in interaction with other selves. And what they're doing is they're sort of extrapolating their own sense of how the world makes sense onto the world and onto others, right? So the way people in our world tend to think is, hey, this is what makes sense to me. This, was, this must be what makes sense to other people too. Think about why many of our modern dialogues about faith or about Christianity or about the gospel or about church seem disconnected, and it's because people aren't trying to reason from, well, what is the church or what is the gospel or who is God? They're saying, well, here's what, it, here's what it seems like to me. Therefore, here's what other people must think as well. So because there's this intuitive way that our self-concept maps onto how we see the world, um, I think this is a really fruitful place for us to spend our time. Here's another way to say it. The place where the gospel most radically critiques and confronts a post-Christian world is in its understanding of the self. To go back to Tim Keller's point, if it's true that you and I are doing ministry in a post-Christian world, the place where the gospel and where the scriptures most critique and confront a post-Christian world is in its vision of the self. I want to convince you that Every other challenge you're going to face in the discipleship of individuals to Jesus comes back to reshaping our view of the self and undoing some of the modern assumptions we have about the self. Okay? So, before I lay out for you my content, I want you to turn with your cohort again 
And I want to give you another three or four minute brainstorm, and that is this. So take this category and ask this question. What do modern people believe about the self that seems to be in conflict with how the Bible views the self? Okay, so in other words, before I lay out for you the stuff I have to teach, I want you to, again, do some intuitive work and say, okay, what does it seem like modern people believe about the self that creates conflicts with how the scriptures talk about the self? Do the best you can on that in three or four minutes, and I'm going to, again, ask you to, to sh- shout out your ideas here in a few minutes. All right, I know I haven't uh, given you much time, but again, that's the point. I want to keep things moving and keep you thinking. So you guys yell out for me, what are some of the things your group talked about, things that modern people believe about the self that seems to be in conflict with, with what the Bible might teach about the self? Okay, good. We are enough. What else? Okay, good. Good. I know what's best. Follow your heart. Okay, I am what? Okay, good. I am what other people say I am. Good, entitlement. Okay, I set my own rules. Okay, good. The self is unlimited, okay. Okay. Okay, good, yeah. Um, Lack of commitment, we might call that. If I don't like it, I'm just going to bail. Good. Nobody knows me. Um, Here's one of the things I want you to see. Imagine that the people you're discipling the people in your small group, um, the people in your church, the neighbors that you're reaching out to, imagine that they intuitively carry with them some set of these beliefs about the self. Maybe not all of them, but let's say 30 or 40% of these ideas are floating around in any person. Can you see how everything we say about the gospel and about Jesus gets filtered through these assumptions, right? So if, if I have, if, if my view of the self is I am enough and I don't have to be committed to something if it doesn't feel like I should stay committed to it, then no matter how many sermons you preach on community, what am I going to do? I'm going to engage in community with a foundational assumption that I'm actually enough, that I don't need these people, 
and that probably I can bail if things get hard. So should you be surprised when people bail when things get hard? Do you see what I'm saying? Like the work that we're doing to try to impart a Christian worldview is bumping up against and actually getting defeated by these implicit understandings of what it means to be a self. And so some of the work I want to help you do today is the work to deconstruct, to identify what view of the self are we coming in with and are people in our churches coming in with so that we can begin to do the work of graciously deconstructing that. Instead of trying to just lay over top of that a bunch of doctrine that is true, but that is going to get defeated by, by false understandings and assumptions about who I am and what it means to be me. Okay, So that's the work we're going to do this afternoon. I'm going to send you to your cohorts to do your presentations, but let me give you a little taste of where we're going to go. What I asked Ben if I could do, uh, for these set of lectures is essentially to work out um, a number of themes. This is a book that just came out two weeks ago by Carl Truman called The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. Uh, as you can see, I'm about two-thirds of the way through it. So I'm not even going to summarize it for you because I haven't finished reading it yet. But I, when I heard the title of this book, I was like, oh, that's the thing I want to talk about. Because no matter what Truman is doing in that book, that, I think, is the fundamental issue for Christian mission in a post-Christian world, is the idea of the rise and triumph of the modern self. So I'm going to work out some of Truman's idea in this book, uh, as well as these four. Uh, Divine Sex by Jonathan Grant, uh, which tackles some of the same themes. Uh, How Not to Be Secular, which is Jamie Smith's book about Charles Taylor. It's a lot more accessible than Charles Taylor's really, really thick book that's very dense. So I like reading books that make it simple for me. Uh, Mark Sayer's book, Reappearing Church, and Alistair McIntyre's book, After Virtue, which is an old book uh, where he sort of, uh, in a very prescient way that sort of looks into the future, tackles some of these things back in 1981. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to sort of summarize the ideas of these books, and I want to give you five characteristics of the modern self. I want us to talk about them together. I'm going to have us brainstorm them. I'm going to have us uh, apply the gospel to them so that you walk out of here at the end of the day with a sense of, hey, here's five ways people tend to think about the self that I can begin to apply the gospel to and to factor into how I think about teaching, how I think about discipleship, how I think about my fight club, how I think about the people that I'm engaging with, how I think about parenting and raising my kids. Everything you're doing in Christian discipleship, I want you to have these five characteristics of the modern self in the mix so that you can apply them and, and think about how to get underneath them in the work that we're doing to make disciples. Okay, So that's where we're going this afternoon, five characteristics of the modern self. Um, and hopefully by the time you walk out of here this afternoon, you will have a very good summary of sort of how do we take all these intuitive things that we're sensing that people think about themselves and about reality, and how can we sort of get underneath them and begin to speak to them compellingly and winsomely with the gospel, all right? So we'll save that for this afternoon. That's all for now.